Welcome. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. And tonight we have an interesting show. Uh, it's going to really be a kind of history lesson of sorts. Some of it's prehistory or other things like that. And uh, it's about keeping God in the U.S. Constitution. You might say, well, wait a second. I didn't know God's in the, in the Constitution. Well, in a very uh, interesting way. The U.S. Constitution is a, we'll say, a prodigy of there being a belief in God in most of the people who helped to create it. But this is something that we that's going to be part of tonight's show. Uh, and why is this so important? Well, because we know that right now there's a fight for socialism and socialistic ideas and and other types of thoughts about government and methods of uh, people uh, dealing with what we call capitalism. But it, it's it's really, it boils down to the question of God, and that's what, that's what I'm going to be talking about, okay? All right, so uh, where does all this come from? What, where, where, how, in a historical sense... Where did the idea, even of the way the Constitution was created, uh, actually uh, come from? Uh, a lot of people say, well, we were fighting England and we needed an alternate way of governing ourselves because we didn't like having a king across an ocean telling us what to do and taxing us when we didn't like the taxes and doing all kinds of other things, taking over our households and basically running our lives uh, as almost all of the monarchies in the world were doing then and even somewhat still today. So there was a yearning by the colonists to uh, have a, a freedom from tyranny, what they called tyranny. And they considered tyranny as a sign of of evil. Now, their concepts about tyranny were more directly centered in terms of their rights to make decisions for themselves. Uh, these days, because tyranny has evolved, it also would include the idea of what is socialism and communism, where the government not only uh, takes over uh, your rights to some extent, it basically takes over your life. And it runs your life as though it is a property of the government itself. So the constitutions of those countries that do that, starting, I guess, if you wanted to go back in time, you'd have to go back to Marx and Engels and, and you know, the, 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 the Burns and the guy, people in the in socialism and communism in the mid, mid-19th century. Those people, those people had within them a, a kind of... Uh, uh, we'll call it need to control others. It wasn't just about government 
they believe that the smarter people in the world, the people who had the ability to manipulate control, should be in power. And so they wrote theories to support that position or desire in them to control others. And this is actually a foundation for evil. So you can literally jump, push all these different isms, not capitalism so much, but all the isms of uh, socialism, etc., and communism, as a, uh, a facade to uh, have power and control other, over others because of a need of uh, building up a shallow self and a darkened or even evil self. So an evil wants to do exactly what socialism and communism do, which is to control others for the sake and benefit of those that are doing the controlling. And that's what those methods employ. They are anti-God, therefore. And most of the time, not surprising, they condemn God. They say there is no such thing as a God. If there is, it doesn't matter anyway, because they're the ones that are a boss and in control. But they usually just condemn God, and they're anti-God. And if they accept any form of God, it's a God that says they are the ultimate rulers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we know that Hitler did that. So I mean, so you you it, it, it all comes back to the same thing, basically. I'm going to do it because I want to do it, because maybe I can do it if I have enough power. And power is what evil uses. Evil is uh, founded on uh, the overpowering of other humans to enslave them and to get them to do whatever that those that are controlling them want them to do. And the same is true of this problem with a constitution and a government that is godless. Okay. So, now we have the question of, well, does God in the constitution mean that everybody has to believe in God? As a matter of fact, the whole idea of having God in the Constitution is that nobody has to believe in anything. Nobody has to do, believe, or whatever other than to live their life as a free person and free people and to do anything and everything that benefits them and those they care about uh, as long as it does not directly cause harm to other people. Now, you could say, what about the indirects? Well, sure. If one person makes a lot of money because they're, we'll say, better at doing it, some people are going to make less money. Not everybody. Because usually, you know, the old saying, uh, you know, a ship that uh, brings up everybody, the, the, the tide brings up everybody's ship at the same time, well, kind of the same thing here. Uh, in most cases, it's a win-win. Not always. Capitalism has some winners and losers sometimes. But the losers usually are those that have don't even come close to being a winner. 
and they haven't created enough of virtually anything to make it worthwhile. So that's how that gets in there. Now that's the economic side of things. What about the morals? What about the, the you know, thou shalt do this, then all those things, God has said in some Bibles, etc., and some religious. Well, interestingly, a constitution doesn't and shouldn't have any of that in it. Uh, because the concept behind it is that a lot of people don't necessarily practice the same religion. And those that have no religion have every right to have no religion. They may have no belief in God whatsoever, and some may have a belief in God without having a religious belief, belief in God. So you have, you have all this happening in a world, if we go back in time, to the 18th century. And uh, here in the United States, uh, it finally gelled in a few of the, we'll say, more thoughtful political figures. Uh, one of them was Thomas Jefferson, who himself was pretty hypocritical and had a lot of issues in his life. He was also an introvert, had a lot of difficulty uh, facing people. And uh, I know, well, you say, he was president of the United States. Yeah, yeah, he, he was, and he had some pretty difficult times with his friend and enemy at the same time, Adams. Uh, and both of them had wrong viewpoints on many things, in my opinion. But the one thing that they tended to agree on, which is an interesting thing, is that the concepts that I'm talking about this, uh, tonight, about God being in the Constitution, was critically needed. And they even seceded to some of their quirks in having differences of opinion on a subject. But they wanted to get along until midlife, and then they were enemies for a long time. So they ended their lives, and they sort of said, hey, maybe we better forget about it, because we're both dying, and that's it, and let's be friends. But what what's so important about particularly Jefferson, and that is forgetting that he was a hypocrite, and he lived his life considerably different than he wrote, or the, and he even led when he was president. Uh, he was particularly influenced by some very, very, very profound figures, almost unknown of in history, uh, unknown to the general public. But historians know something about them. And one of them was a, was a guy who ran almost the entire world for a while, the known world. And his name was Karash, but uh, also known in... Uh, by the Christian churches, etc., as Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Second, Cyrus the Great, depending upon what you want to call him. Uh, and what was so great about this guy? Well, he was the first person to put down, literally on paper, uh, although his, his wife and her assistants did most of the writing, what he came up with, because he was running around with other women sometimes, or he was going into battles and doing other stuff. 
Uh, and he liked talking with people a lot, but he, he wasn't uh, wasn't thrilled to do any personal writing, so he had other people write for him. But it was his ideas, and he okayed what was put in. And so she wrote down what his ideas were, and then eventually uh, he, when he found them to be to his liking, the way he really wanted it to be, he enacted them. And what were some of those ideas? Well, he said that no human being should ever be a slave to another person. Or a slave even to uh, a, a king or to anybody. He said slavery as slavery exactly as being slavery should be abolished. And he did so. Now you could say, but wait a second, I heard that sometimes he force people to work and do other stuff. Yeah, as punishment. It was if, if someone was arrested and found guilty of a crime, uh, he didn't lock them in a cell. He said, you go work for the people you harmed. <laughs> and when you're done doing that, uh, then uh, we'll have another hearing about the situation and uh, free you. But you first you got to undo the harm that you did to whoever it was that you did it. And that was his common method of punishment, unless you did something really, really bad. Now, if you took the lives of others or conspired to do so, uh, you could be food for this guy's lions, because he loved having lions as pets. I know it sounds weird, but he did. And uh, sometimes he gave him the kick of hunting down and killing people that were treacherous and very, very evil people. Now, why wouldn't he just lock them up, and et cetera? Well, it was inefficient, and he didn't want to spend the time or money dealing with someone who has been so destructive to others that their their life shouldn't even be available to them anymore. So he believed in capital punishment. He actually practiced it with his lions, at least. Sometimes he hung people or something similar to that. It wasn't exactly a hanging, but similar. And sometimes he uh, would kill them in other ways. And he killed lots of people with swords. <laughs> sometimes himself, but usually uh, in battle he killed people because he was a, he was a fighter. He was a, he was a general, but he actually fought and led his armies. Well, how could that kind of guy be so profound? Well, it turns out that besides all the things I just said about him, he was one of the most thoughtful and possibly the brightest ruler in thousands of years of time, before and after. Uh, he didn't live that long. probably died in his early 60s. Some people say as early as 57, others as late as 64. But nobody seems to know because ages were not really well documented at the time. But uh, they know a lot about how he died and where he was and what kind of things he was doing. And uh, he he loved his wife a great deal, but because he wasn't home much, he, he would cheat on her. And then other things that he did were not particularly kind to his children because he expected a lot more from his children than he did from almost anybody else. And sometimes they just couldn't live up to it. And uh, also because they felt uh, he was cruel to his, their mother, 
because uh, he wasn't faithful to her, and he didn't particularly hide that from her either. So I mean, it was a, a difficult, a difficult kind of guy, but a brilliant person. So he wrote some stuff uh, with the assistance of his wife mostly, uh, and what he wrote, you're not going to believe this, but what he wrote is the foundations of the U.S. Constitution. Now, I know that sounds hard to believe. This guy lived 530 B.C., you know, I mean, we're talking a long time ago, right? And most people never even heard of him, right? Or they heard his name, but they don't know anything about him. Uh, but he went ahead and he, he wrote brilliant stuff, or she dictated it, and um, it was, and, and also, I, I want to mention that he, he didn't have trouble actually writing because he couldn't write write in terms of thinking writing, but nobody could read his handwriting, so, so it was another problem. So he had to have somebody else actually be a scribe because he was kind of scribbling in his handwriting. But at any rate, so... We don't have any actual documents that he physically wrote. Nobody knows that they exist at all. The Persians, and that's Iranians today, uh, claim they had some things, but they disappeared. And nobody knows if they were real anyway. And there was some stuff that were written in stone. That stuff survived. But he didn't do the writing in the stone. So we know that he, he didn't do that. And, you know, writing back in those days, they used, like, papayas, you know, all that other crazy stuff. And, you know, it wasn't like today. You don't go down and get a ream of paper and just, you know, type it out or use a computer or, or write it and just handwrite it, of course. Uh, so all of that was different. What is it that he wrote that was so profound that Thomas Jefferson got every copy he could find of this guy's writings? Each one was a bit different because they all had gone through a very terrible thing. The uh, Christian, Catholic Christian church, uh, because of the desire to have things say things that are in their favor, uh, took what he wrote and uh, Latinized it. Well, anything that goes through that system ends up being corrupted, and that's exactly what it is. I don't know if Jefferson ever had a copy that wasn't corrupted. That's a good question. He had supposedly a dozen or more copies, but they were all, maybe, they were all Latinized. What did they say in general? They said what's in the Constitution of the United States. Because what he did is he elaborated and enumerated the various ideas and then came up with the Declaration of Independence to be killed. And then from that, that was given to a group of other people, who, and it took like a long time, like 20 years, and they came up with the Constitution with his assistance uh, and the assistance of Adams and other people that were working with him in the 1780s, and etc. And I, I think it's really important to to realize that the United States Constitution is truly formed from this early, very early 
uh, series of works. And uh, I'm going to tell you some of the ideas that were in there, and you're going to be very, very surprised. People had the right to speak. They had the right to say their opinion, and they could not be punished for having an opinion contrary even to the king, which in this case would have been <laughs> Cyrus himself, right? And he let people to say whatever they wanted to him. He also uh, was the first and possibly last person <laughs> to completely free the Jews that were all enslaved, unfortunately, at that time. And he made sure that they got some land back and were given a, a chance to start restart their lives. If they stayed in his kingdom, they were given uh, higher level responsibilities because uh, to compensate for their life of tyranny. Because for hundreds of years, they've been enslaved and they were just terrorized and beaten, etc. And so he gave them favorable, if they wanted to stay, most of them wanted to leave, he helped them to go to Israel, what was then going to be Israel. And uh, incredibly, his, uh, uh, his way of treating Jews uh, became a way of treating all people uh, in, in the right way. Uh, the Jews had been enslaved in parts of his kingdom because he had taken over these parts. He didn't necessarily take them over and then enslave them. They were already enslaved for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. And he, he said, this is horrible. These people shouldn't be enslaved. It's ridiculous. And he found them to be uh, good people who had uh, intelligence and worked well. And he said, you guys should be free. But it wasn't just the Jews. He decided that he would free all people. <laughs> be no slavery. And on top of it, he opened higher schools of education. This guy had public colleges. Not just schools like, you know, for little kids and stuff. That that he had, that was even done earlier. The Greeks had done it earlier. But he had most of the time, education stopped when people were like 12 years old or so. He had people going to school like in their 20s, like we're, what we're, we're used to. And the government paid for some of that if they paid it back in services for a while. I mean, we're talking about he had school loans that were actually, you could pay off by service. I mean, it was unbelievable, unbelievable, and this everything I'm telling you is factually confirmable. You could check it out, and all this uh, became part of Jefferson's wonderment, saying, "Boy, that would be one hell of a constitution." And uh, so it was with the other many other uh, famous relatively famous people who helped to write the United States Constitution. And so this is a this is a an amazing thing to me anyway. And when this whole thing kind of settled out, it was finally um, a instrument, the Constitution that had almost all things 
in for most people, except it had slavery. And that was one of the first things that were absolutely condemned in 500 B.C., before 500 B.C. Those are the 530 or 540 B.C. Unbelievable. And that was a terrible, terrible thing. Most people aren't aware of this, but the people who later became truly Democrats uh, were the ones that wanted and kept slavery, uh, both in the Constitution and then later in the individual state laws that we're familiar with. So a terrible, terrible insult came about because they didn't follow what they claimed they were following. As soon as they did that, they started pushing God out of the Constitution. Now, how bad was it? Well, extremely bad. Everybody thinks that after the Civil War, slaves were free. That is absolutely not true. The 40 acres and a mule and all that crap lasted about a few months at best in most areas, and no more than a couple of years in others. So everything that was supposedly repaid in some way to the people of color that were slaves in the United States, which is a huge number, millions of people, uh, continued until well into the 20th century. So much so that uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat and a bigot, unbelievable, and uh, as much a a uh, person in favor of slavery, if he could just get it back, and he was just a terrible guy. Now, yeah, okay, so he got the probably got the Spanish flu and died, but the point is that his wife wasn't any better, and she ran the government the same way. And, and this is we're talking about 1917, 1918, terrible things, you know. And this guy was just horrendously a bad guy. But don't think that anybody really, until Truman, was much better. So we had a lot of problems. It may be true Republicans were less uh, anti-slavery, uh, were more anti-slavery and less in favor of the bad things that were done to all the black people and anyone else that, was, that they didn't care for. Uh, they were more more open-minded. They weren't all great about it. But here we have something, again, that's keeping God out of the Constitution. All these things are a front to why we exist at all. Now, have we come a long way from that? Uh, yes and no. Yes, as far as the constructs of slavery per se. But now, with the same level of what we'll called antagonism and hostility, 
that was put towards slaves, uh, they're the same kind of people. Now we're going after white males. And that's pretty weird. So, I mean, it it, it kind of gives you a pause to think about, well, how far have we come? And, yeah, the only thing you've changed <laughs> is who you're going after, what you're still going after. Uh, and, and this is really, really weird stuff. It frightens me. It concerns me. How do you get God back into the Constitution? It was barely ever there in the first place because of all these problems. Well, the first way to do it is to treat all people, regardless of creed, regardless of anything, the same. They all have the same rights. They all have the same responsibilities. They all have the same freedoms. And if there are any things that are restricted, it's restricted because it's harmful to people at large and not because it's just harmful to some small group of people, in which case you could just handle it by the police and by a local level situation without having to have it in the Constitution in any case. That is what we need, but it's not the direction we are heading into. We're heading into the opposite direction of socialism, communism, etc., which is a godless country. It doesn't mean everybody's not, they're not going to be a believer in God. It just means the Constitution will no longer support the right to do so. And that's a very, 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 very bad thing. I mean, that's like, our, that's what the whole thing was about in the first place, right? And we never quite got there, but we certainly were working towards it. Now we're working in the opposite way. And this bothers me. That's the reason I'm doing tonight's show. This really bothers me because the United States isn't going to be destroyed from the outside. The United States is going to destroy itself from the inside by kicking God out of the Constitution. Now, what are some of the practical ways to keep God in the Constitution? Well, the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is supposed to safeguard the Constitution. Uh, its job, primary job, is to safeguard the Constitution. It has other jobs, don't get me wrong. But it has to safeguard the rights as stated and acceptably implied from its inception in the Constitution. But they cannot make up new laws just because they feel like it or they think it's good or bad or whatever. Because the Constitution has to remain uh, keeping God as the entity that exists in it. And the only way to do that is to make it so hard to change it that you have to have votes way beyond just a majority to make it different than it has been. That's not that's not done by accident. That was done to keep God in the Constitution. 
if you don't do that, let's say you get a Supreme Court in, we've had a number of them in the last 30 or 40 years, that says, and they're mostly Democratic-controlled Supreme Courts that have done this. They say, well, we've got to modernize it. We have to bring it up to today because this was written 300 years ago. Who knows what was going on then? So we'll just uh, change this idea. We'll interpret it based upon what's going on today. Well, that means that every day that they do that, they rewrite the Constitution of the United States. And every day that they rewrite it, God is leaving. Why is there a connection between God leaving and you just rewriting the Constitution? Because the whole purpose of keeping God in is to, is, is, can only be kept there if you make it near impossible to get rid of it. If you make it easy to get rid of it, it's inevitable that given enough time and the right circumstances, it will happen. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. So the real danger, the greatest danger that we have in this country is losing God in the Constitution because of a change every maybe six months of a year in the Constitution itself by rulings of federal courts and particularly the Supreme Court. That's a big problem. It's such a big problem that it scares me. It worries me. Now, you could say, well, is that what Trump's trying to stop? He's trying to get, you know, well, yeah, he's president right now, and he probably can stop it for the most part. But you've got to make it so ridiculously hard and so unconstitutional for a judge, even on the Supreme Court, to rule in a way that says, I don't care what it said before, I'm changing my mind based upon what it, I think it should say. And anybody that says that, their vote should not be counted. And if they do it more than like five or six or ten times, they should be just removed from the court. Now, I know that does, that, a lot of people say, well, they're on the court so that you can't get rid of them because then they, they could be intimidated. But they're acting as the intimidators now. When I say they, I'm talking about over the last 50 years. I'm not talking about what happened last year. about over time. And so that's a scary thing. That's a very, very, very scary thing. You know, and it's, it, there are so many different questions that need to be answered in a way that has God in it, even though it isn't about God. And if you remove God, you're just screwed. And the Constitution was written with God in it, and that's where we are running our greatest danger. Tremendous now, I'll tell you about another story that I know of. This is going to sound like maybe I'm nuts, but I happen to know this to be true. And that is that I told you about Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. But his whole family background goes back a long, long way. 
And actually, Cyrus was a very brilliant person, literally, literally, uh, 9,500 years before he was born. And in, in that particular life, he was uh, a like an avatar type of person. He he, he he had gifts from other worlds. Even he was a great person who uh, knew uh, ahead of time that Atlantis was going to be destroyed. Uh, now there's some people now who do believe it. There was an Atlantis and was destroyed. There's a lot of actually people fairly well known who believe that. But uh, there may have been several uh, flyby comets and or asteroids that hit the Earth around the same time that had compounded the entire effect. And, of course, we know that the waters rose, uh, so only the highest mountaintops could be seen. And the rest of the earth was covered in water. Now you say, is that really possible? And the answer is yes, if you melted all of the ice caps within a very short time. And then if you had disruptions in the seafloor that pushed up certain areas. And if you simultaneously, simultaneously maybe had some an asteroid or two made out of water like miles wide, strike the Earth. And as it came in, it melted, of course, and all that water would fall down. So you add all these together, and you can end up with a, with a pretty sizable sum of water. And the water then comes down in rain and all that sort of And it turns out that Cyrus's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, whatever, uh, was living at that particular time. And he's fairly well known uh, in some historical circles. And what he did, he knew this was all coming. He knew that this was going to happen. He says, "We got. there's only one way to survive. You've got to go to the highest mountain possible. And you have to figure that that's not going to really be a mountain environment as soon as this happens. The water's only going to be a couple thousand feet below the very top of that mountain. So he found a mountain about 15,000 feet that uh, was... It still kind of exists today, and it uh, was was right by where Turkey is, and, but it went from north to south, more or less, at slight angle, and uh, it, it touched almost into what we would consider to be Persia. And that was where he decided that would be the safest and best place and easiest place to get to from wherever he was to get it. So everybody went, that he knew up there, and he also started with the lion business. He said, "Well, we don't have enough. <laughs> we don't have enough people to protect us from anybody else. And if something goes wrong, we, we're going to be pretty well screwed here." So he, he got a bunch of lions, like a hundred, and trained them from birth to be protectors, and it worked. And that's sort of where it started, even though it went down to to, to Cyrus, but. It, it actually started with this much earlier relative, and uh, he lived a long while there at the top of that mountain, except it wasn't like living on a mountain, because the very top of the mountain was only a couple thousand feet above sea level. Sea level was that high. 
And the only thing they had trouble with, it wasn't really enough fresh water because water usually comes from underground. And when the sea is surrounding you as it was, it, it makes it very difficult to get underground water. Certain things, problems with pressures and other problems that develop. Well, he figured out ways around that and other stuff. And he created this great kingdom uh, to wait for the water to subside and to start a whole new kind of group of people. And those people believed very strongly in a single God. And they were the forerunners of people who we are familiar with in the Old Testament, the oldest parts of the Old Testament. Even though a lot of people think the Old Testament only goes back to 3000 BC, which really is at least back to this 12, uh, this 9000, 10,000 year era of time, the Neolithic time. Now, what does that mean, Neolithic and all that? Well, one of the things that was happening was people were trading a lot more, not just within their little communities, but between what we would call countries of sorts and cities, etc., more like city-states. And because of this trading, there was a more a greater level of communication and unification. So it was kind of uh, uh, an economic system that brought this about. And the changes in economics allowed people to move up in their station because anybody could be a capitalist, effectively. It was totally permissible, and there were no real strong rules about being against it. So if you grew something, you could sell it. If you sold it, you could trade that for something else. You could trade your labor for something, or you could, uh, you could pay other people to do labor for something that you create. Besides, all of that, all of the ideas of capitalism actually developed in that time period, but also it existed much, much earlier during the Atlantean times, but the Atlanteans were not as good at it. Why not? They were too emotional. And they lost sight of God oh, by about Six, seven hundred thousand BC, they had lost sight of God, and it was pretty bad. So it, it's amazing when we think about it. What's what's really happening here? Because uh, this is like a, almost our recent history, and yet we don't know much about it. And that's a that's pretty pretty amazing in itself. So Cyrus the second was really uh, affected by his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Uh, and all that kind of fed down into his uh, way or ways of thinking. Because he really wasn't a Persian, as the Persians today, and particularly Iranians, would like you to think. He, he really wasn't from that particular cultural standpoint. But they take credit for it because he did live in that area for a while and other things, and they they need their heroes, so it's okay. You make a hero out of them, you know, whatever. But at any rate, it's kind of amazing that his great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were of this 
nature. And again, they were trying to put God into the things that they did. They also banned slavery at that early time. There is more than ample evidence of that. They banned slavery. They also prevented people from uh, doing things that were uh, violations of their rights in various other people's rights. And they just were pretty amazing for the time period we're talking about. Because the world was fairly primitive by our standards, at least today. And remember, after the Atlanteans went down, there virtually was no civilization. And the dark side was fighting like crazy to take over the world. So it wasn't an easy time for anybody to be living in. And almost all signs of prior civilization that was Atlantean was destroyed and hidden. But these people weren't truly Atlantean, so they weren't really hidden. It's just that where they lived was wasn't taken much notice of. Very interesting stuff. I hope that you find this show interesting tonight. So the United States Constitution, if you really, really, really wanted to push the limits of where it comes from, comes from 11,000 years ago. Whoa! How do you like that? And that is something to, to, I mean, it's almost like remarkable to find that that's true. And those people influenced the Greeks and the Egyptians and all kinds of people who came after them. And, and anything that even resembled some form of democracy came out of their really already well-developed democracy with a constitution with God in it better than the cultures that I just mentioned, certainly better than the Egyptians ever managed, and uh, better than the Greeks, even in the later Greek periods that were more experimental sub-race people. But the, 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 the key here is that that long ago, it was pretty amazing place. Now, you may have heard me talk about that others came, we call them avatars, from other worlds, yeah, they started coming in soon after all this. Once the waters did subside, by uh, 8,000 B.C. or so, they were arriving. And they were trying to get people to do what? Put God in their constitution. That They wrote all kinds of stuff, and they helped people to write. And they did all kinds of things. And they invented writing for most people, because they didn't right people weren't writing back then and they tried to teach them the right ways to live and to give up the the terrible terrible greed and selfishness and evil that had developed so strongly during the Atlantean period in the Atlantean period eventually one out of four people were just purely evil over that probably and life was just disappearing on earth because of so uh, that was a very, very bad thing. It, it finally, it took the destruction, near destruction of all people on Earth to get rid of it. And it was only going to be done that one time. So 
So it gets back to that level. There's not going to be another, let's start over. There's only going to be bye-bye. And the souls that are here that aren't evil, they'll, they'll go, they'll go elsewhere. You know, most of the souls that are on Earth are here to try to make it a better world. It's their thing. They want to make it a better world, and they're fairly competent at doing it. If somebody would let them do it, anyway. So that kind of gives us a, a historical viewpoint. And when we come back, I, I, I'm going to have to take a break here soon. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about some more specific things in today's world that is going on and that we can maybe make a difference soon. Something, some things that we have to consider if we're going to improve the present problems we're having and maybe wake, awaken people. Uh, I, I think that we need to have maybe some people willing to teach a lot of the stuff I'm talking about without people having to pay a fortune to go to some school, some university or, you know, pre-university, whatever. So it's a whole other thing to think about. Okay, listen, i, I got to take a break for right now. We'll, we'll be back in about uh, two and a half minutes, give or take, uh, or so, from right now. Hun, Hun, what book are you reading? It's a novel, kind of, about romance, love, and spiritual life in general. Kind of a novel? What do you mean? Well, it's based on some real-life experiences and even real characters. Some of their experiences are fascinating and remarkable. I can't put this book down. How come the title is Afterlife Love? That's part of the fascination. This book describes the afterlife in intricate detail and even explains why things are the way they're explained. But how can anyone write about or know that? Some of the characters travel out of body to some places that people who've already died also go to. I'm finding it completely believable because it all makes sense and fits into a bigger picture for me. Hun, what happens to these people? You can read it for yourself when I'm done if you want. Better yet, I'll get my own copy so we can discuss it while we read. Let me see. I'll write down the title. It's Afterlife Love by Niles McFlower. M-A-C-F-L-O-U-E-R. Afterlife Love is available in some bookstores and from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com or 480-966-3132. That's 480-966-3132. Hi, everyone. Since childhood, I've had questions about my life and life in general that I couldn't find adequate answers to. Questions like, why am I here? Why are others here? Does the universe have a purpose? And how does that relate to my life? More recently, I've been wondering what happens when we die, especially the reasons why. I'm more of a doubter than a believer in many things, and answers that include the whys allow me to think and figure out the truth for myself. I've been reading a book, Life's Hidden Meaning. This one book contains more answers, including the whys, than all other sources I've read or heard. It's amazing to me that every one of my questions has been thoroughly answered. More importantly, I have found that all of these answers so far have checked out to be true. I hope this message helps some of you in your quest for better understanding. The name of this wonderful book is, again, Life's Hidden Meaning by metaphysician Niles McFlower. Some bookstores sell it. I got my copy directly from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com. Life's hidden meaning may enlighten your mind and bring some peace and joy to your heart. 
Wildlife is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight we're talking about keeping God in the U.S. Constitution. And uh, if, you, if you're still thinking, well, I thought God's always been in there, uh, I, I hope that the first part of the show gave you some ideas of how it's been a real challenge. Now, I want to mostly talk about the future at this point. I, I realized it took that long to talk about the past, and I really didn't cover everything. I mean, I'm just giving you a smattering. A lot of the stuff you got to go to books and read. So, but, but the point is that it's not what most people think it was, and that's unfortunate because we we don't learn even if we take classes in school that are most of the stuff is not taught. I know. No, why not? But it's not. I know that from my own experiences. Okay, so how do you how do you improve this situation? Well, I think, and this is going to sound absolutely crazy. I think it's okay to teach little kids, like four, five, six, uh, something about the Constitution and God. I believe in both of those ideas being brought together. To just little kids. And you say, well, they're not going to understand it, are they? They can understand some of the basics. And the basics really are just as important to adults. We think that we have so much smartness and intelligence, but really, most people get confused very quickly about this particular subject, and they don't follow it well. I know, because I speak on it, and they get lost easily. So, teaching it at a very young age, to me, would be a good idea, and it's not. I think most people know it's not. They usually save it for high school, right? Well, what good is that going to do? I mean, seriously, you, you really need it to be a foundation for your life, not, you know, well, let's learn about the Constitution. You know? Well, it's not about the Constitution. It's about making sure that everybody has freedom to express themselves and not be controlled by a government or by just any group of other people that feel like them. And that's so critical, and it comes from God. Now, why does it come from God? How can you argue that point? Particularly to like a six-year-old or something someone younger than that. Depend upon, depends upon where they're at in terms of their development. Okay, so you, this is the way I would put it. That if we, if God doesn't exist, let's, let's assume, let's go the other way with the thought process. If there is no God, and there is no creator, right? Okay, so we remove that from what we consider to be our rights, our rights, then all the rights we would have come from people who say they have a right to control, manipulate, enforce, change, maybe imprison, who knows, us. You see how dangerous that is. So even if you don't believe in God, the fact that God becomes the central issue of control in the Constitution prevents that other thing from occurring. So you need God in the Constitution whether you believe that God exists or not, 
because having God in the Constitution prevents evil from taking over. That's what you teach little kids. They can figure that one out if you explain it right and simple enough. And, and, and you still leave it up to them to decide whether God really exists. Now, I would teach them a lot of different things about God that would go farther than just the question of the Constitution so they could understand how God could exist and why, etc. That's a whole other show. And I do it all the time. And now I do a lot with science, of course. And that's another thing. You know, science it has uh, become foreign to all forms of religion, and it is also foreign to God. So I'm not talking about all scientists. I'm talking about maybe 95% of them. <laughs> Enough that it will scare anybody. And so that's, that's not good because those people who I consider to be the people who question everything and, and explore to find out the truth are no longer doing that when it comes to God because they've made up a, made a decision that's going to color their thought process and empower others, including through using the Constitution, to drive God out. That's a frightening idea. And, of course, it's already driven out of most forms of public education. If you send your kids to public school, be forewarned. There's, there's virtually no hope. Most public schools are anti-God. So it's a real tough problem. And the solutions lie in probably the aspect of parenting, the idea of free thinking. And that means having God in the Constitution, it means having the idea that everything comes from some source greater than those that want to control us and be the manipulators over us. You see how important that is, whether you believe in God or not, why it's so important. And I, I really do hope and pray that those people in the United States who have been going the wrong way on this wake up. Because whether you believe in God or not, your very existence and that of your children and the future of the world, etc., is dependent upon pretty much what happens here in the United States. And if we screw it up, uh, the other countries in the world, and I can never go to Europe, it's all going to fall in. Terrible things are going to happen. And that doesn't matter whether you actually say, but I don't believe in any particular faith. Maybe I think there could be a God, but I don't know. That's okay. Remember, this is about God in the Constitution. It's not about it's not about having a specific faith, and you practice that or not. Or having no faith or having some faith. Those are all okay to question, okay to, to, to believe. Not so that others have to follow it, just so that you can choose to have it for yourself. Now, when it comes to teaching children, the object is to present a scenario they can understand with multiple answers that they have to test and figure out for themselves 
and you help him set up experiments as a teacher or a parent to find answers. Did you understand what I'm saying? So you have a hypothesis and then you work on that and you see where that goes to and you use you create some tests to find out whether that's true or not and you examine it. That's how to raise kids that are self-thinking, that are going to keep God in the Constitution, among other things, but also are going to be the most wondrous adults. They're going to turn into great people. And that's what we need to be doing much more of. How much of that is going on? Mm-hmm. Not as much as I would like, because like I said, most public schools don't practice that. They try to teach by rote and tell people what is the right way to think about everything. And of course, most of it is anti-God, so you've got a real big problem. Uh, if one thing, if there's one thing that anybody can do, unless they live in a very unusual area of the country, I would say, Take your kids out of public school and find a private school of some sort. I don't care what kind you choose them. That fits some of the parameters that I'm suggesting. Don't just read about them or hear from somebody. Go to the classes. Listen. It's very easy. Just visit 10 classes and in a day you're going to know. How are they being taught? What's being employed? Is it like what I just said, or is it some other kind of, like, you're going to think this way and that's the way it is? And then what kind of materials are they given? A bunch of books that just are written by people who don't believe in God? And that's it? Well, that's not good. Or books that have been so thoroughly cleaned and cleansed that they say almost nothing about anything. Also not very good. If you can't talk about God in school, that's a school you should leave. So, and if you can't read or write or anything, it's a school to not attend, not go to. Most places you can go almost, you got a lot of options for where you send your children. There also is homeschooling in most places. You just, you could just teach your own kids. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a lot of work. But you can maybe work with other parents. You know, one parent teaches one week, another teacher teaches... I mean, it doesn't have to be that only one person is doing this. And I, I really, really believe that it's okay to talk about adult subjects at a level that children can understand it. We're children. This idea, oh, well, that's too much of an adult, so we can't talk about that. Well, that is ridiculous. That is, we should be able to talk about anything and everything with our children. And the reason for that is simple. They need to be open-minded enough so when they get older, they do the same. And they won't if they don't have the experience as a young person to be able to do that, right? I say they won't. Most won't. Sure, some might, but most won't. So we're making robots out of them. Terrible, terrible thing. And this thing troubles me. And it's one of the reasons we have today uh, a majority of young people under 30 
who are socialists. I say majority, it's over 50% here in the United States. Now, you could say, well, but half of them don't vote. <laughs> that could. I say, yeah, well, that's not the point. Even if they don't vote, there's still people and they're still making decisions that are anti-God in their life and they have a great deal of hatred and resentment for people who are not like them. And some of them are violent. Others are crazy in other ways. This is the problem. Now, young people are always a little bit anti-whatever their parents are. That's not unusual. But it is what it's at the level that we see today and have seen developing, like not just today, decades. And it's getting worse. It's getting, it isn't getting better. Uh, and I, I say this with great trepidation, that we're on the verge of possibly seeing the end of first the United States and then of planet Earth. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm just telling you the way I see it. And it's all because you've got so many people that are relatively young that are so radical. Now, you could say, yeah, well, back in the 70s, in the 70s, only about one out of three young people were radical. Most people aren't aware of that. That's still a very high number. I don't want you to think that's a small number. But today, it's certainly reversed from that. So two out of three are more radical. And the higher they go in education, particularly if they're going to colleges and universities, the worse it is because those particular institutions have become like a hotbed. I'm not talking about everyone. I'm talking about the average. For being anti-God, anti-freedoms in the Constitution, they are as socialistic as, you know, as Nazi Germany, basically. They just soft-pedal what, what, what their level is so that you don't know it. They just hide it in their lessons and their demeanor, condoning bad things on campus and getting rid of anybody who isn't the way they are, that kind of stuff. Used to be when you went to college, you could express yourself, and there were always some radical people around. That's okay, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't like it was completely the whole school, and it was so ridiculously one-sided that nobody thought in any other way. Those there were some institutions like that. They were very rare to be found. Some of them were highly religious institutions, run by a particular religious order. So you have that. But those were pretty few in number. And then the majority of them, majority of institutions were fairly open-minded, fairly. Not so any longer. It's not like that. All right, so how do we change that? How do we get to these, all these relatively young adults who are, at this point, seemingly unrecoverably, uh, you know, I used to call them Bernie Sanderized or something. And the, the only 
answer to this is to keep working on things like what I'm doing on tonight's show is re-education at a different level and in a different way than the ones that are usually used on a university level or in a grade school up. If you continue to use those methods, you'll never break through the way it has been built today because you're blocked. So I would suggest alternative programs in education. Uh, maybe you don't even get credit for them, at least not the kind of credit most people would think of. But it would be where people get to really examine issues down to the most, we'll say, uh, disagreeable levels between themselves, and then see how they can find a solution together so that what they come up with is closer to what they believe to be truth than the closed-minded ideology that they were being fed and are feeding back on their present campuses, etc. And this is true in high school as well. High schools are no better than colleges in the same respect. So you've got you've got a we have a need for a new type of alternative education. Can this be accomplished? Well, I happen to be working in that area myself right now. Some of the things that I'm working on with others is to introduce in some scientific fashions, but also other ways as well, uh, the ideas that I talk about on this show. And this is for people in the age group that we're talking about. And some of these people may be very religious in a particular way or very anti-religious. It doesn't matter because I'm more than willing to talk to them and show them some alternatives that they may not be able to consider in their normal class situation. Possibly because they get a funky grade altogether and get thrown out. And so we're working on this so that maybe 50, 100 schools might eventually offer something like this. But the thing is that you got to start somewhere. And so I don't want you to think that I'm just sitting around pontificating about this on a radio show. I'm not. I'm betting it my whole life on it with a bunch of other people. And that's what we're doing. We're doing this very thing that I tell you about. And there's all kinds of forces that are trying to prevent us. Now, whether they think they're trying to prevent us from doing what we're actually doing or whether they don't just don't like us or whatever the story might be. There are those forces out there and some of them are pretty formidable and they've been terrible for some time. We still move forward. Why? Well, because if we're keeping God alive, there's nothing better we could be doing and there's no reason for us to be concerned or fearful or upset. There are major parts of the world that are dark and even evil that don't want us to do this stuff. And would like to see us just disappear. We accept that. We realize that that happens. That doesn't mean that we're happy about it. 
I don't want you to say, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Get you more people that really want to do bad things to us. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not encouraging that at all. But I'm just saying you can't be afraid of it. You have to just keep going forward, regardless of the consequences, so to speak. And keeping God is a critical, critical factor. One of the places that uh, that it's really, really tough to deal with is uh, in certain legal situations that we're constantly involved with, and. The thing about it is this, that most of the laws uh, are not used to create goodness or God or support the righteousness of anything. They're there to uh, give those that have power more power and more money and to suppress or destroy others that might in any way uh, be standing in their way of doing everything and anything if you like it. So it's a kind of crazy system because unfortunately we have, as a, a spiritual group, a mission which is continuously attacked for various sides. When we pay attention to the attacks we have to sometimes, uh, we have to also keep our mind completely open and focused on all the other things that we're here to do. So we can't just say, well, we'll put aside all the good things that we're working on because we've got to survive this onslaught, etc. And we, we just, we can't, we don't do that. So and it makes it very, very difficult because there's you know, that, that means you don't have a lot of time or money or energy left to do any, almost anything because it's all getting used up very quickly. And so the same is true on a much bigger scale with whole groups of people in society. They're facing almost the same kinds of things, not, not nearly as severe, but it's part of their living experience while they're physically alive. It is true. It virtually goes away when you leave the physical realm and you live in the astral and beyond that. Other dimensional realms that don't have as much force involved. Forces work against humans and they work in favor of evil. And so evil loves force, forceful lives because that gives them the greatest opportunity to gain a power over others. And that's what it's here for. That's what it wants. That's its goal. It doesn't want things from where its perspective is. It wants power. And so we're constantly in that, we'll call it contest. Now, taking us out of the picture, there are a multitude, a multitude of different, unfortunately, uh, groups of people who face something in some way similar. And the shame of the whole thing is that there is nobody that really stands up for them as a group. Now, why is that? And that has to do with tonight's show. 
It's that God has already been removed enough from the Constitution to permit so many bad, illegal, and dishonest and crooked things to take place. If you put God back in and made it stronger, a lot of those things would would die on the vine. It wouldn't it wouldn't work for it. And that's what we're hoping for in the things that we do. And that's the solution in the long term for, for tonight's question and problems. And for young people, it's doubly so. Uh, you know, adults beyond the age of 28, and particularly 35, uh, usually have either found God or they're not going. But they're not in a quandary as a young person who has rejected God because they have been taught that it's silly and stupid to believe in God. And even worse, to practice something about God. So belief is one thing, but then when you actually make your a part of your life, oh my God, it's terrible. But those people are the most dangerous people to eventually vote if they decide to all vote, which they haven't done yet, but if they all vote together, it could end this country. And it's a frightening thing. I think they, they believe that, too. But they aren't all willing to go through the step of actually voting. I know that sounds hard to believe. But, you know, they're, they're complacent because they're more concerned about protesting and being part of the group who is doing something than they are about righteousness. Thank God. So they get waylaid easily. And it, it's just a fact that maybe only one half to a third, two thirds, depends on the circumstances, of them will vote. So they don't even vote. But that's because they have these personality issues, we'll call them, that are standing in the way of them taking the responsibility to vote. <laughs> So keeping God in the Constitution also helps people become more certain to vote because they see that that's an important activity. And it does make a difference whether you do it or not. Even if it won't change the outcome of that particular election, it changes you. And that's the more important thing. You see, everybody says, well, I'm only concerned about whether someone's going to win or lose, so if my vote isn't going to change whether they win or lose, why should I vote? And the answer is, it changes them. Those who don't vote are constantly moving into a state of loss of God and darkness. Just by not voting. I don't care what excuse they make. That's what it produces. And that means if two out of three of these younger people that we're talking about aren't voting, they're all in trouble. From that particular standpoint, it's a very, very tough thing to concern yourself with. And in reality, as much as I would hate it in some respects, 
it's better if all the young people voted, even if they're going to vote for very bad things, at least in the beginning, than to not vote at all. Why is that true? Because they are taking some responsibility, even if it's not in the court of belief structure that I have, or others that I know. It's probably the best thing that they vote. And that in itself, just the act of doing it, will help them change over time. And I'm willing to accept if things can get worse before they get better if a young person under 30 votes and they vote all vote for keeping God out of the Constitution and every other kind of crazy thing. I'd still rather have that because in the long run, they're much more likely to become far more responsible. And they're much more likely to actually change their vote. To seeing and finding God in a way. And that's my opinion. Now, a lot, a lot of people may not think that way, but that's, that's what I think. Now, in the news recently, there's been some people who have been trying to discourage some people from voting and encourage other people to vote, <laughs> to win elections and that sort of stuff. And I say, encourage everybody to vote. Just encourage everybody to vote. And the voting itself and the, the helping of getting to the core of what's, what you're dealing with is very important. So voting changes people because they take responsibility for the way they think. And then they take responsibility for what they produce. So if someone votes to uh, uh, get God out of the Constitution, they really, really, I don't want to have anything to do with that thing. I don't want to. And they vote like that for two or three elections. The good news is that over time, they're going to say, Wait a second. I'm not so sure this is the right viewpoint. Because they're actually thinking about it, because just to get out to vote, they're going to be thinking about it. So there's a chance, not necessarily 100%, that a lot of these people will try to keep God in the Constitution if they vote for a, a, a few elections. A very bad chance that they will if they don't vote. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> That's, and I, you know, again, some of this is my opinion, my thoughts about it, but I, this is, I, this is what I believe. And I, I know that's not in accord with some political people who are trying to keep those people from voting. I think they're making a huge error in the way they've been doing it. Uh, some of them only try to get people to get out to vote, but then they only try to get the people to get out to vote or who are going to vote the way they want them to vote. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like that that doesn't work either. It's not the right thing. Now, what else can we do to try to solve our problem about our constitution? The general I'm not I'm getting a bit more specific back to the question of the US Constitution. Well, one of the areas that needs to be cleared up is that the the government, U.S. government in particular, and government in general, has stolen many 
powers that the people have. One of the last things that happened, which is just very recent, uh, is that you no longer can maintain your right to be silent. And the reason that is true is that you can be recharged with the same crime by a whole bunch of different government entities, one right after the other. And so if you aren't completely silent and you say anything, it can be used against you in the next time because they keep filing a charge against you from another precinct, municipality, state, or federal government. And that has to stop. To preserve the Fifth Amendment and other amendments and to make sure God stays in the Constitution, you can only be tried for a crime, no matter what the crime is, one time. That's it. By one body only. And if whatever body takes jurisdiction, that's the only body that can charge you with that crime. Whether you win, you lose, or draw, it doesn't matter. One time, that's it. That is the intention in the Constitution. Do not think that that's against the Constitution. It's being changed. The Supreme Court this year changed it. And it needs to be changed back very soon. We're going to have a terrible, terrible problem. Everybody will be unable to defend themselves because whatever they say today in one situation can be used, turned around and used in another situation for the same crime but now being charged by a different part of government. Well, that's as crazy as all hell. So you can only be charged one time. They can choose whether it's the federal crime and the state crime, did it both ways. They can choose one of them, but they can't, for the same exact crime, they can't get you on each, each level. Now, for people who say, yeah, but how are you going to get rid of all the criminals? Well, there's Getting rid of criminals is not just punishment. The best way, if you want to get rid of criminals, is to put more God in the Constitution. Make sure that they experience what God is so that they seek their whole soul, which is a sort of standard for God, and function more as a soul than as a selfish criminal's lower self. That's terrible, with a personality disorder on top of it. So we can do something about that. We don't have to live this way. We don't have to make these laws so incredibly crazy. But we've been going down the wrong way. We're moving away from a sane position. And we're moving away from keeping God in the Constitution. You could be charged with the same crime 20 different ways and times. It's it's impossible to live your life. And that is not the intention of the U.S. Constitution, in my opinion. 
You have to be able to allow people to be free. You can't make it so that you can constantly harass and destroy the life so that you can just control them. Yeah, you may have to let a few evil people go because you can't always win that contest. It's better to leave some go than to harass and take all the rights away from some vast number of people, or even one person, as far as I'm concerned, because that's a that's a worse thing, much worse thing than it happened. That's going on right now. I mean, that that's like this year. I'm pretty upset about it. It's solvable, but we have to go back to keeping God in the Constitution to solve it. If we don't, the Constitution won't protect us because the things that are in there that protect us have to do with that issue. And we are charging people the same crime from all these different sources. You just, there's, that, that's not what it means to have God in the Constitution. It's what it's like to have, have a, a Constitution that's used to destroy people. Anti-constitutional. Pretty bad. When I talk about the idea of capitalism, we tend to believe, generally, the United States, that capitalism is the economic engine of freedom and opportunity. And in most circumstances, that's fairly true. What are the uh, parts of it that are godly? Well, each person can create themselves into something greater by their own efforts, and they are rewarded through the process without having it doled out to them or removed from them or overly given to them. That's what's so wonderful about it. It is truly based upon how a person creates for themselves and for others eventually and makes a living, as we call it, doing it. Then where is the rub with it? Well, capitalism means that some people inevitably are going to do better than others. You don't have uh, a the same level of wealth, the same level of even freedoms, certain freedoms, and you have the same level of productivity between people. Well, who says that that's bad? That's the nature of existence. To deny that, again, put you back into the communistic realm. And it is a denial of what it's about to be here. This being alive in the physical world is an opportunity to be self-created and to also make mistakes and screw up your life. It's an opportunity to burn off karma from mistakes from prior lifetimes. It's an opportunity to help others and serve others, which is the higher higher goal. All of those are interfered with 
if you interfere with the idea of capitalism. So even though capitalism has some negative aspects, because some people abuse their wealth, they abuse their abilities, but that's part of the situation. They're not perfect. They may be even bad people. They happen to be rich bad people, which happens. But I'd rather, much rather have that than to get rid of capitalism and have the government uh, determining what we can and can't do, how much we can and can't make in terms of money and funds, and what we actually can do with our lives, which is really probably the underlying greater issue. That's a big deal. And I would hope that a lot of people, a lot of listeners tonight, would consider that to be very important. I hope they do. And if we look at the principles of God through angels' wisdom and science, I've joined the two together, as you know, uh, the answer is obvious. Capitalism and all of the elements that I'm describing are part of the way God is constructed, chooses to be constructed, and how God is represented. Because God wants people to have independent choice and the ability to make errors, the ability to create, and to benefit from their own creations and to pay for the ones that are harmful to others, if not immediately, then through what is known as a karmic or a slowdown in time-space, because you're separating time-space, it takes longer for it to manifest. But when it comes back, it's a lot worse, a lot more energy in it. So, all these things make perfect sense to me. (laughs) It's almost like capitalism and God are virtually inseparable because it represents a God who doesn't want to control you and gives you the right to control your own life. Well, that's my kind of God. So keeping God in the Constitution is keeping freedom in the Constitution. It's keeping not a God that tells you what to do. It's a God who refuses to tell you what to do. Beyond that, refuses to force you to do anything and gives you multiple, vast numbers of opportunities, but doesn't do so with any qualification, like, oh, well, now you owe me. (laughs) That's a pretty amazing system. So if you read Life's Meeting, it's all in there, of course, but that's how it's explained. And, but it's more scientific, I agree. There's a lot of science involved in it because science is a way to prove or disprove something for humans in a mental way. And we need that. We need to know that it's not just somebody saying fancy words and it sounds right. 
we need to be able to test it as a hypothesis, first in our minds and then in our interactions. Because you need to eventually use your senses and bodies to test these things. You can't just think your way through them because your thoughts can deceive you. You can be wrong in your, or have errors in the way you think. But when you test it using your bodies, the senses, and you actually are exploring using energies, which joins time and space, by the way, you get closer to truth. And that's a very good thing. We should teach our schools exactly the same, in the same way. Because it's just a copy of what God does, if you believe in angel's wisdom. It's just a copy of how the system is designed. We're not creating something new and forcing people to follow it. We're describing it to people and saying, check it out and see if you find it to be true. If you do, well, then expect this, this, and this is the most likely result. And then see if that works. And then keep testing it. Never give up testing it. Always push the limits. Always assume there's something you may not know. And always think that even if someone says something that seems absolutely positively right, you should still check it out. I hope that makes some sense because that's how I try to live my own life and I try to help other people to do the same thing. I know it's a tough pill because someone can't just tell you what to do when you do it. You really, I have to become responsible. Responsible means you've got to figure it out. And the being that made sure that we're going to be responsible is God. That's why I think of a being to figure all that out and say, well, this is the way it's got to be. You can help grow me, but you can't do so. And you can, you can help know me, but you can't do so unless you do it within yourself first. So you can't go to here or there or everywhere and just hear about God and that's all there is to do. As a matter of fact, you can't get anything about God by doing it. You have to be co-creative. You have to create so that you can understand. Wow. What a unique and different place, different idea. If we can keep God in the Constitution, all the things that I'm saying would be natural. It would be the norm. It would be beyond the norm. Everybody, almost everybody, would find it to be workable, useful, accurate, in the long run, wondrous. What makes it wondrous? Because it is so incredibly, to begin with, incredibly straightforward and simple, and to end, the most complex things you could ever think of. It has both sides. And that's what I love about it. I know 
Yeah, people hear me talk about this stuff and they say, yeah, well, what did he know? Hey, that's why I write it. That's why I teach it. That's why I explain it. That's why I do some math with it. That's why I do other stuff so that other people can challenge it. Not so they will follow it. Not so they'll accept it and say, oh, yeah, that guy on the, on the radio, he said it, so it's got to be right. No, I, I, that's not what I'm I'm just helping people to look into it for themselves. And it isn't about trying to sell any books or anything like that. We, I know we advertise books. But the point is, the books are very, very helpful. Because there just isn't anything right now that will replace them adequately. So this is, you know, a very good attempt so far at trying to describe some of the most difficult things to understand. How difficult? Well, most people start reading lights and meaning and they and they forget through the first chapter and so I can read this. And then they get 16 pages of the second chapter and they say, I'm never going to understand this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 70 pages, the first thing, no problem. It gets to the second, turn the page, I'll never get to figure this out. That's way over my head. I can't understand it. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I find that so fascinating and stuff. Yeah, but if you keep reading, and you keep going through what I wrote, and you use the book as it's intended, which is as a tool, and then you do your own, your own experiments, make sure that it's just not some crazy guy writing this thing. Make sure it works out to be what, what I say. Then, You'd say, well, I can trust it, so I'll read a little more and see where it ends up. Why not? How come God quite never quite made it into the U.S. Constitution, 100%? Because that's a true statement. And the answer is, although the framers... As I talked about Thomas Jefferson, but others too, tried very hard to get it in. Their nature kept having conflicts because their lifestyles were so selfish, mean, obnoxious, if they had slaves, of course, and destructive. So they had an internal problem, an internal problem that they could not resolve. And that's why they never could get it really quite right. That's why we had the worst civil war maybe known. That's why we have what we have today. It all stems from virtually the same kind of 
problem. You've got to let go of your selfish desires to control other people and to have what you want at whatever cost it is to other people. And that's a tough one. So going all the way back, before there was the United States, before there was even a colony maybe here, this has been a big problem. And we're still working on the solution. Isn't that incredible? We're a couple hundred years forward. And we're still trying to solve problems from the very beginning of the construction of the Constitution. And it's always about God. Ultimately, that's really what we're talking about. And you don't have to believe in God. But you also have to accept that God is part of the Constitution as a necessity for its existence and our continued existence. Let me finish tonight's show by going back in time again. I talked about Cyrus the Great. I think I've called him Cyrus the Second because he his first his father's name was Cyrus too. Uh, why was his life so profoundly more understanding of God in 530, 540 B.C. than people of today? How could that really be a true statement? Does that make sense? After everything that's going on in the world, from the Nazis to the, to the communists to the Colonel Frank in England with the socialists and the nuts, nut cases and every other screwball that's been around trying to kill people and Napoleon, you name it. What, how could that be? And it's a very, very, very clear, to me, answer. He was willing to accept what was right at all costs. What he thought was right for everybody else, not for himself, he was willing to give up anything about himself to support what was right for everybody else, no matter what the cost. Because there were a number of things, I didn't even get into them, that he gave up that were important things to him at the time. He gave them up because they cost others. And he couldn't bear to have that as 
is part of his life. He just refused to live his life that way. And uh, some people even state that he was killed. It happened because a, a general that was went off and did his own thing. But he was killed because he was more concerned about correcting a situation in how that general was dealing with his enemy in wrongful ways. That it would cost more lives for the enemy in what the way that he chose to do it. The general said, I can win. Why, why are you running hundreds of miles after me and coming to stop me? I can win this battle. Just let me go after this woman in this, this army. And he said, no, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to beat her with a military action. You created one now. And he ended up getting shot with an arrow while they were having this disagreement and allowed her, this, this woman, to uh, get behind them and shoot, shoot, shoot at him and basically kill him. But that was the reason. That, that's what caused his own death. And it was not, it was not, because the guy wasn't going in and beating the hell out of another group of people. It was quite the opposite. He said, I don't want to win battles with people by destroying them. There are other ways to achieve these results. And you should not be doing this just because you think you can win a battle. That's how he died. It took about a week, but he eventually died, or more. Some people say a week, some people say a month. I don't know. For sure. He was dead, eventually. He died. But all because his answer was to defend the rights of his enemy, or what least his other general thought was an enemy. He didn't see, see them as enemies. He was trying to get them to work together to become something more themselves and help everybody else. I know it's hard to believe that because people have different ideas about what actually happened, but I, I believe what I'm telling you is the truth. He wouldn't have even gotten shot with an arrow if it hadn't been for his need to stop his wayward, younger, much younger general from doing this. And he might not have actually had the rank of general. I don't know if that was a rank they had at that time, but he was leading a whole army. And he, he wanted to immediately go attack her and uh, Cyrus just said, you're not going to go attack her. I won't let you do that. While they were fighting this thing out, they snuck around behind him and got shot. Shot with an arrow. 
So he gave up his life in defense of a potential enemy. I want you to think about what that means. How many people do you know who would do that? Would you do that? So there's a lot to be said about keeping God in the U.S. Constitution. It helps us to find ways to deal with things that have very, very bad consequences without God. Very bad. Well, we're running out of time. One of the things I always find interesting about shows like this that are historical and everything is, you know, I'm giving my version. I'm sure there's a lot of other versions of some of these things. I can tell you that I think my version is accurate, but it doesn't mean that it is. So you should probably look it up and see what you think about everything I said. Including the fact that this guy who was brilliant, etc., back in the day, uh, was not a perfect person. There's no question he wasn't perfect. But he sure stood for doing the right thing when it came time in big decisions. He was, he was really willing to do whatever it took to keep God in his constitution. And it's too bad that that constitution, the one that he created, isn't the one we have today yet. We're getting there. But we don't have it yet. Well, we're out of time. And until next week, this has been Niles McFlower for Wildlife Is. <laughs>